0: Oh, I've been thinking. Oh, what do you want to do that
1: for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy
0: night. They call me Mr. Tibbs.
1: Welcome to 99 Years 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film is so highly regarded. When I say we, I mean myself and my Blaine Dowler and my ever-present co-host, Trey Hooks. How you doing, Trey?
0: Good, Blaine. How are you today?
1: Ah, I'm doing well. So are we ready to take a look at 1965's The Sound of Music?
0: We are. You could almost say it's one of a few of my favorite things.
1: Oh, yeah, I'm sure we could. The original release date was March 2nd, 1965. Screenplay was by Ernest Lehman. He based it on the play The Sound of Music by Howard Lindsay and Russell Krauss. And although they did not credit it, they based their play on the story of the Trapp Family Singers by Maria von Trapp. And just to be clear, that Maria, I believe, was actually the daughter Maria. They changed the names for this movie. This was produced and directed by Robert Wise, and the top-billed stars in the Wikipedia list are Julie Andrews, Christopher Plummer, Richard Hayden, Peggy Wood, Charmaine Carr, and Eleanor Parker, although there, I think you could make a case that there should be more like 10 or 12 names on this. Uh, with music by Richard Rodgers and Oscar Hammerstein, the second, with a score by Erwin Kostel. So those details out of the way, the plot, courtesy of the kind folks at Wikipedia, is that Maria is a free-spirited young Austrian woman studying to become a nun at the Nånberg Abbey in Salzburg in 1938. Her youthful enthusiasm and lack of discipline caused some concern. Mother Abbess sends Maria to the villa of retired naval officer Captain Georg von Trapp to be governess to his seven children, Liesel, Friedrich, Lubiza, Kurt, Brigitte, Marta, and Gretel. The captain has been raising his children alone using strict military discipline following the death of his wife. Although the children misbehave at first, Maria responds with kindness and patience, and soon the children come to trust and respect her. While the captain is away in Vienna, Maria makes playclothes for the children from drapes which are to be changed. She takes them around Salzburg and surrounding mountains, and she teaches them how to sing. When the captain returns to the villa with Baroness Elsa Schrader, a wealthy socialite, and their mutual friend, Uncle Max Detweiler, they are greeted by Maria and the children returning from a boat ride on the lake that concludes when their boat overturns. Displeased by his children's clothes and activities, and Maria's impassioned appeal that he get closer to his children, the captain orders her to return to the abbey. Just then he hears singing coming from inside the house and is astonished to see his children singing for the baroness. Filled with emotion, the captain joins his children, singing for the first time in years. He apologizes to Maria and asks her to stay. Impressed by the children singing, Max proposes he enter them in the upcoming Salzburg Festival, but the suggestion is immediately rejected by the captain as he does not allow his children to sing in public. He does agree, however, to organize a grand party at the villa. The night of the party, while guests in formal attire waltz in the ballroom, Maria and the children look on from the garden terrace. When the captain notices Maria teaching Kurt the traditional lander folk dance, he steps in and partners Maria in a graceful performance, culminating in a close embrace. Confused about her feelings, Maria blushes and breaks away. Later, the baroness, who noticed the captain's attraction to Maria, hides her jealousy by indirectly convincing Maria she must return to the abbey. Back at the abbey, when Mother Abbess learns that Maria has stayed to in seclusion to avoid her feelings for the captain, she encourages her to return to the villa to look for her life. After Maria returns to the villa, she learns about the captain's engagement to the baroness and agrees to stay until they find a replacement governess. The captain's feelings for Maria, however, have not changed, and after breaking off his engagement, the captain marries Maria. While they are on their honeymoon, Max enters the children in the salzburg Festival against their father's wishes. When they learn that Austria has been annexed by the Third Reich and the Anschluss, the couple return to their home, where a telegram awaits informing the captain that he must report to the German naval base at Bremerhaven to accept a commission in the German navy. Strongly opposed to the Nazis and the Anschluss, the captain tells his family that they must leave Austria immediately. That night, the von Trapp family attempt to flee to Switzerland, but they are stopped by a group of brown shirts waiting outside the villa. When questioned by Gottlieb Hans Zeller, the captain maintains that they are headed to the Salzburg Festival to perform. Zeller insists on escorting them to the festival, after which his men will accompany the captain to Bremerhaven. Later that night at the festival, during their final number, the von Trapp family slip away and seek shelter at the nearby abbey, where Mother Abbess hides them in the cemetery crypt. shirts soon arrive and search the abbey, but the family is able to escape using the caretaker's car. When the soldiers attempt to pursue, they discover their cars will not start as two nuns have removed parts of the engines. The next morning, after driving to the Swiss border, the Von Trapp family make their way on foot across the frontier into Switzerland to safety and freedom. So yeah, as the Wikipedia synopses go, I think that did hit all the main points. Yes. Simplified a little bit by omitting Rolf, but that's understandable. So I'm hoping that listeners have had a chance to watch the movie, if they feel like doing so before they listen to our episodes, because obviously they're full of spoilers. If you haven't Rolf was a telegram boy who was a love interest for the oldest girl who voluntarily joined the Third Reich, and he was the one that actually spotted them in the Abbey and sent up the alarm. Not immediately, he was confused at first, but when Georg von Trapp says, yeah, come with us, it's not too late, you don't have to join them, he makes up his mind, because Rolf was one of the people who was joining the Third Reich willingly. Right. Which Georg didn't anticipate.
0: I could be wrong, but out of all of the films that we've covered or will cover, I would say this is probably most likely to have been viewed, particularly out of the films that are, let's say, post-1990, or excuse me, pre-1990. Yeah, I would
1: I would say that probably The Sound of Music and Casablanca are the two people are most likely to see if they aren't actively seeking best picture movies. These are the ones you're just most likely to stumble across and watch. As we're talking about the film in general, one of the things that'll probably come up is just how insanely popular it has been. The budget was $8.2 million, The box office was $286.2 million. That's not a level of profitability that is common, and that's what saved 20th Century Fox after the money that they lost on Cleopatra earlier on.
0: I don't know about... Canada, but in a lot of the United States, the Sound of Music is similar to the Wizard of Oz in that there's normally an annual showing somewhere between, let's say, Thanksgiving and New Year's, either on the syndicated channels or on one of the primary network stations. So I, I know as until as recently as twenty thirteen it was still being shown annually. So there's there's a good sh- chance that people have seen this one.
1: Yeah, and Canada is not too different. Our local national networks don't run it as often as the US networks, but most Canadians you will have those major Canadian networks, so your CTV and so forth, C B C. But you will also have in your cable package, feeds of ABC, CBS, Fox, and then UPN and CW. I guess they're now the WB. But yeah, we have at least the um, NBC, ABC, CBS, Fox, and the WB, or the, sorry, no, UPN and WB merged to be the CW. So I'm trying to talk about cable when I cut my cable in 2005. (laughs) So, but yeah, we, we get the major US networks as well. So we'd see those annual screenings. And it is a popular movie for reasons that I'm sure we'll get into.
0: What was your impression on this showing?
1: This is one that I had seen a lot. But growing up, the copy that we were watching was recorded off of TV. So I think this is only the second or third time, because it's the DVD viewing, that I've actually seen the entire film. Because it is close to three hours So the TV broadcasts tend to be edited for length. So the versions I grew up with, for example, were missing the shot that reveals it's the butler France who tipped off the brown shirts okay. and, and things like that. A lot of the little subtle shots that I didn't realize were in there. The opening shot is a sweeping shot panning over the Alps, which was drastically reduced in ours, as was the opening piece of music. We didn't see the close-up of her going through the birch trees. So the hills are alive. It They had a jump cut from there to the church bells ringing. So this I actually enjoyed more because, you know, they cut it for length because they saying, oh, that's not needed, that's not needed. But all that stuff, while not strictly necessary, I'd say is additive to the film.
0: I, you know, I enjoyed it more, this viewing as well. I think it's the first time I've seen it as an adult. And you're right about the long viewing time, but it seemed longer when I was a child, so I don't know if that's just, you know, the difference in attention span as one matures, but I didn't find it to be, it didn't feel it's three hours, I guess is what I'm trying to say.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, it, it takes the time, but even as a child, it didn't feel like it was a long movie until... They start performing Edelweiss on stage just because it's a slow song at you know a tense moment. But as a child, I remember knowing, oh, that's a three-hour movie, and thinking that performance has about an hour left after it. But no, it's more like five to ten minutes. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You know, there's there's not much left at that point. So by the time it it actually starts to feel long, it where the first time I felt like I'd actually been watching for two hours, it was more like two hours and forty five minutes. And so that will depend on. How much you enjoy the song Edelweiss. I just found it was very slow to have at that point in the film. All right. There's actually a lot of subtle shots that I didn't appreciate as a child. For example, when he was singing Edelweiss at home, I didn't recognize what was happening as a child but there is a shot that is from the point of view of the Baroness where she's looking directly at Captain Von Trapp and he is looking at Maria. Even though the Baroness and von Captain von Trap are approaching marriage, and she's expecting the proposal that would come not long after.
0: Those are the two characters that stood out to me the most this time around. Were not, it wasn't um, Maria and the children. Not that there was anything wrong with their performances, but I was more attentive to, or maybe more drawn to. Christopher Plummer, Eleanor Parker, and Richard Hayden. And I think part of that is because I didn't remember the Max Detweiler and the Baroness character from when I was a child.
1: Yeah, I remembered Max, but I didn't have a clear image of the Baroness. If you told me as a child the Baroness, I would have pictured Anastasia Decobre from G.I. Joe Comics. But yeah, I was impressed with them. And I do have to give a bit of a a shout out here. I have a a friend. You can find her on the IMDb. Her name is Erica Conway. That's Erica with a K. Her IMDb list is not as long as her resume because a lot of her work has been on stage. But we used to work together at a theater in high school. And, you know, she is a working actress. One of her jobs was on the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus after Heath Ledger passed. And it was a couple days after Heath Ledger passed, so the cast was still reeling. They had just gotten back to work after taking some time off, and she commented, "Christopher Plummer." He introduced himself, and we're, her line or her role is fairly small. I don't even remember if it's a speaking part. I think it's right at the end. There's a young couple bring her daughter up, and the daughter interacts with one of the stars. She's the mother in that couple. But Christopher Plummer was quite happy to introduce himself, which is rare. Often, you don't talk to the person whose name is on the top of the call sheet when you're on a set. He reached out to her, and in the downtime filming, they spent a lot of time talking about the industry. He gave her a lot of advice. She had nothing but positive things to say about her experience with the man.
0: I love hearing stories like that.
1: (sighs) Yeah, and we often don't. That's why I felt, no, I'll I'll bring that up, because she was really impressed with... You know, he he was very much, you know, just stepped into the mentor role when he knew that she was open to it, freely offered advice, and was a perfect gentleman the entire time. So, and especially at that difficult time.
0: Christopher Plummer is a very interesting actor. You know, this wasn't one of his... This wasn't his first role, though. It was one of his earlier films. And I... I'm fascinated by him because, and maybe part of it's my own experience, I feel like he's, with the exception of maybe The Sound of Music, I feel like he's known more for his body of work going from, you know, the mid-90s to when he passed, rather than prior, rather than, you know, like the first 30 years of his career, if that makes sense. And I'm always fascinated by actors who have that sort of longevity hmm
1: He has that, and it's surprising because he also wasn't a huge fan of this particular movie.
0: And I, I can understand why. I think he does great things with the part. He does a lot of very subtle and nuanced acting, but for, let's say, maybe the first half of the film, and I'm generalizing, he's the closest thing the film has to an antagonist.
1: Yeah, he was very rigid, which the real von Trapp family wasn't happy with, because it's not the way their father was. So uh, just to be clear, in terms of this being inspired by the story of the von Trapp family, I think this is a case where they should use inspired by in the credits rather than based on, because they did take a lot of liberties to make a more engaging film. Their actual escape from Austria was accomplished by getting the telegram, immediately driving to the nearest train station and buying tickets. The border wasn't closed until the day after they were out of the country. And yeah, Christopher Plummer, I would agree, even looking at his IMDb, the top four known for films include Beginners from 2010, The Insider from 1999, All the Money in the World from 2017, and Remember from 2015. I'm actually surprised Sound of Music isn't one of them. Some people know him from Knives Out. He was a man who was working right up until the end. He even has a movie that hasn't been released yet, possibly because of COVID delays. He's the movie's listed as completed, it's Heroes of the Golden Masks. But we are recording this actually about a week after the one year anniversary of his passing. So the fact that he's got stuff that was running right up until he passed, and others that are you know, ready to go and haven't been released yet. So he was working right up until age 91, so and also Canadian, born in Toronto, Ontario. And yeah, he wasn't a huge fan of this film because he found it very sentimental, and the role was not as meaty as he'd been used to at the theater. He did soften. He said he was difficult to work with because of it. He kept trying to almost lampoon it because he thought it was so goofy, and Robert Wise had to keep him in check and get him to do retakes. He admits to being a completely blitzed, drunk in a couple of the scenes when they were filming. But if you listen to the commentary, he softened, and he's kind of realized that, yeah, it was his problem. He was spoiled by the theater roles. So it's not that this role wasn't good enough. He was used to better, and he was cocky and young.
0: And I, I get the sentimentality criticism. One of the things that I appreciated more upon this viewing was I do think... Weiss and Lehman did a good job of foreshadowing the changing political climate, which was setting up the conflict and the climax of the film. Mm -hmm. And it's very much a heartwarming relationship, family-slash-will-they-won't-they romance. I think that's probably, I think the sentimentality is probably part of the reason why I hadn't watched it repeatedly in my adult years. I I remembered it as being, as having catchy songs, but being somewhat dull. Now, as an adult, having seen it very recently, I wouldn't characterize it as dull at all. But, as a child, that's what my impression of it was.
1: Yeah, that was my impression, too. Now, as an adult, I would say that it's got catchy songs, but rather than dull, I would say it's subtle. Yes. And it had things I didn't catch. I mean, this was the movie where I learned that Nazis were a real thing. I, My first introduction to the Nazis was as a three-year-old watching Raiders of the Lost Ark in the drive-thru, or the drive-in theater. And this is the movie. Where it's like, oh, wait a minute! This is two completely different movies that both have Nazis as the bad guys. Were these bad guys real? So this is the movie that helped me make that connection to to realize that that was actually pulling from history. Although the depiction in Sound of Music is clearly more accurate than the depiction in Raiders.
0: Right, and it's a movie that does not spoon feed anything to you. So, as an adult, I can put two and two together and understand the pressures that Captain Von Trapp had. I don't think a seven-year-old gets that watching the film.
1: No. No, at least, I mean, when I was three or four watching it, I would not have made any connections when, sorry, the characters, uh, Herr Zeller shows up at the party. I would not have understood why he was reacting to the Austrian flag. I would not have understood why... You know, when he navigates the party to find someone he wants to speak to, he clicks his heels together. I would not have recognized that as part of the Nazi greeting when I was a child. Whereas watching it as an adult, I completely understood what was going on now. But it was very subtle. If you were watching this, it's safe to assume that audiences in 1965 know exactly what the Nazis were all about. Right. Both what their pretense was and what their actual actions were. So this makes no attempt to explain it to the audience. They just give you the hints to say, this person's a Nazi, this person is opposed to the Nazis, and leave it at that. So if you were coming into this with no previous knowledge of Nazis, it would be difficult to understand why Georg was so opposed to them. You wouldn't, and I think that's part of it, is as a child, I could enjoy some of the music, but a lot of that subplot was lost on me because of a lack of context
0: just in case we have a listener who hasn't watched it i'm going to kind of cross the streams here in explaining it captain von trapp was kind of like a naval enemy ace to steal from dc comics in that other than his relationship with his children and grieving the still very much grieving the loss of their mother he was an extremely successful naval commander And the emerging Nazi party and government are actively trying to recruit him through any means possible because of his success and experience from World War I as a naval commander.
1: Yeah, and the tone of the telegram they sent him makes it quite clear that he doesn't have the option of saying no when he's being told to report for duty. So that's part of why he's he's leaving. In the dance scene, that same party, he was wearing a white cross around his neck, and that apparently is a great military honor in the Austrian military that the real Captain von Trapp had earned by sinking thirteen enemy ships in a submarine during World War One. But he was, you know, he was pro-Austrian, pro-Germany, but anti-Nazi. So even though he he served and served well he was not in support of the military actions in World War II, and what was behind their motivations. And that's part of it. We we're seeing a of a resurgence of some of these attitudes lately, so this movie resonated in ways that it didn't when I watched it as a teen and understood what the Nazis were about. Should we mention some of the other notable cast members here?
0: Yes. I, I mean, we've mentioned the character of Max. I could listen to Richard Hayden. He all day long, he has one of those voices, and most of our listeners would probably recognize the voice, his voice. I, I think he's probably best known as the Caterpillar from uh, Disney's Alice in Wonderland.
1: Probably. He also showed up in And Then There Were None. He was in Young Frankenstein.
0: Ball of Fire with Gary Cooper and Barbara Stanwyck.
1: Yeah, so he's got a number of credits to his name. Obviously, we listed Julie Andrews, but haven't really talked about her uh, filmography. But she was, for example, my on stage, she was My Fair Lady. We talked about that last month and how they recast Audrey Hepburn, who was offered the part of Maria in this film, but was unavailable. So that swap out almost happened twice. But Julie Andrews also entertained the kids on set by singing supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, and Mary Poppins hadn't come out yet when they were filming, so the kids thought she made up the song.
0: And it's important to note, the closest names I could come up with for modern audiences, not that I think that people don't necessarily know who Julie Andrews was, but just to kind of explain where she was in her career at the time, she was like... One of, if not the preeminent, Broadway soprano at the time. You know, it it wasn't just The Sound of Music or My Fair Lady. You know, she was the original Guinevere in Camelot. Um, she had done a TV special, a Rodgers and Hammerstein's version of uh, Cinderella. Uh, she She was... Not that she ever stopped being an important name and actress, but she was huge at this time. I mean, maybe Idina Menzel or Kristen Chenoweth come close, but she was a l- extremely important Broadway star at this time.
1: It says a lot that they managed to get her for the film. She, we actually should be calling her Dame Julie Andrews because she has earned that honorific. Some of the others, Friedrich von Trapp was played by Nicholas Hammond. This is probably what he's best known for, but he was also Spider-Man in the amazing Spider-Man live-action show from the 70s.
0: And I'll just throw this out there, is still acting today. His The most recent credit that I've seen him in is he was in Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yep. He's really good in it, too. <laughs>
1: And another notable one is Marnie Nixon. So this is the first time that Marnie Nixon has appeared on screen in a Best Picture winner. So uh, here she plays Sister Sophia, but she's done a lot of voice acting. Or so she did. She was the voice of the singing flowers in Alice in Wonderland, uncredited. She was the singing voice of Terry McKay, uncredited, in An Affair to Remember. She was the uncredited voice of the singing geese in Mary Poppins. She's done work for Singing in the Rain, and for My Fair Lady, she has dubbed a lot of these singing voices and has not received the credit for it. But this time we actually see her on screen.
0: Also notable as uh, Brigitte Von Trapp is Angela Cartwright. Genre fans probably know her as the original Penny Robinson from the 60s Lost in Space show.
1: Yep, probably. Or perhaps as Reporter 2 from the Lost in Space movie. (laughs) So it has a number of people who did go on, and it it is really an ensemble cast. Because we've got the seven children, and I would say four primary adults in the family, right? There's Maria, there's Georg, the Baroness, and Max. And then on top of that, we have Mother Abbess, we have, there's Rolf, there's Max Wright. So there's a number of significant parts, but not huge parts. And that is one of the things that I appreciate about this. It It really does feel full. No one really feels like set decoration. You feel like they have a life outside of this, which is not always easy to accomplish. And one of, well, probably my favorite moment and a very popular favorite moment in this film, talking to others isn't even with the main cast. It's during their escape, the von Trapp family drive away, the Nazis are having a hard time starting their cars. And then two of the nuns turn to the the mother superior and say, you know, I bless me, I, I have sinned. And, you know, well, what are your sins, child? And the two nuns pull out the parts of the engines that are preventing those Nazi vehicles from starting. So they've got the carburetors and the distributor caps that those cars will not, drive without
0: well and what i like is the two nuns didn't come from nowhere they they also participated in one of the earlier numbers you know what do you do with a problem like maria
1: yeah they're right there with how do you solve a problem and then one of the things that really sets it up so we start seeing maria out singing and then you don't know she's a nun at first until the church bells peal And then when she starts running towards the church, she comes back for her habit and runs again. So you don't know that that's her goal. And before she gets back, they're all trying to deal with it. And they decide that she is likable, but frustrating and probably not well suited to being a nun, which is a really good setup. So we understand, right? Yeah, this is not a good fit for her. So when she becomes the governess, it doesn't feel like she's giving up a calling. It feels like she's finding the right calling. Mm Mm-hmm. And in interviews with the real Maria von Trapp, they ask her, were you really this much problem at the, at the Abbey? And her response was, oh no, I was much worse. So do we have any other comments or should we start moving into the other winners and nominees and other categories for the year?
0: I, I just want to talk about the music a little bit more. Cause I mean, we've covered a fair number of musicals on this show so far. And I, I do feel like this is probably the most lasting one in terms of having at least one or two songs that most people would be familiar with today. You know, I think the most recent uh, musical we may have covered would have been West Side Story, and that was a musical to where once I started hearing some of the songs playing I had kind of that oh that's where that came from or oh that's what that tune is moment but I don't know anyone who doesn't know Do Re Me. it's kind of like a children's song standard somehow these are a few of my favorite things have become appropriated as a Christmas song so it gets played a lot at the holidays and I I don't think we've covered a musical yet where the music has had that lasting of an impact.
1: That is true. I remember actually learning Do-Re-Mi in elementary school as part of our music lessons. So from there, we can go through the nominations and winners for the 38th Annual Academy Award. The ceremony was held on April 18th, 1966 in the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium hosted by Bob Hope, produced by Joe Pasternak, and directed by Richard Dunlap. Best Picture went to The Sound of Music, as has been well-established by now, beating Darling, Dr. Zhivago, Ship of Fools, and A Thousand Clowns. Best Director went to Robert Wise, who also directed West Side Story. He beat out William Wyler for The Collector, John Schlesinger for Darling, David Lean for Dr. Zhivago, and Hiroshi Teshigahara for Woman in the Dunes. Best Actor went to Lee Marvin for Cat Ballou, Beating out Richard Burton for The Spy Who Came In from The Cold, Laurence Olivier as Othello, Rod Steiger from The Pawnbroker, and Oscar Werner from Ship of Fools. Best Actress went to Julie Christie in Darling, beating out Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music, Samantha Egger in The Collector, Elizabeth Hartman in A Patch of Blue, and Simone Signoret from Ship of Fools. Supporting Actor went to Martin Balsam, for A Thousand Clowns. Beating out Ian Bannon for The Flight of the Phoenix, Tom Courtney for Dr. Zhivago, Michael Dunn for Ship of Fools, and Frank Finley for Othello. Best Supporting Actress went to Shelley Winters for A Patch of Blue. Beating out Ruth Gordon for Inside Davy Clover, Joyce Redman for Othello, Maggie Smith for Othello, and Peggy Wind for The Sound of Music as Mother Abbess. The Best Story and Screenplay Written Directly for the Screen went to Frederick Raphael for Darling beating out the screenwriters for Casanova 70, Those Magnificent Men in Their Flying Machines, The Train, and The Umbrellas in Cherbourg. Best screenplay based on material from another medium went to Robert Volt for Adapting Dr. Zhivago, beating out the writers for Cat Baloo, The Collector, Ship of Fools, and A Thousand Clowns. The best foreign language film went to The Shop on Main Street from Czechoslovakia, beating out Blood on the Land, Dear John, Quiden, and Marriage Italian Style, Best Documentary Feature went to The Eleanor Roosevelt Story, Beating the Battle of the Bulge, The Brave Rifles, The Fourth Road Bridge, Let My People Go, The Story of Israel, and To Die in Madrid. Best Documentary Short Subject, To Be Alive, Beat Out Mural on Our Street, Neatani, Point of View, and Yeats Country. Best Short Subject Live Action went to The Chicken, Beating Out Fortress of Peace, Skater Dater, Snow and Timepiece which was by Jim Henson, by the way, timepiece. Best Sort Subject Cartoons went to The Dot in the Line, beating out Claire, The Origin of Species, and The Thieving Magpie. Best Music Score, Substantially Original, went to Dr. Zhivago and Maurice Charest, beating out The Agony and the Ecstasy, The Greatest Story Ever Told, A Patch of Blue and The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Best Scoring a Music Adaptation or Treatment went to Erwin Costell for The Sound of Music beating out Cat Baloo, The Pleasure Seekers, The Thousand Clowns, and The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Best song went to Shadow of Your Smile from The Sandpiper, beating out The Ballad of Cat Baloo from Cat Baloo, I Will Wait for You from The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, The Sweetheart Tree from The Great Race, and What's New Pussycat from What's New Pussycat. Reminder to listeners what we've discussed in the past, I don't think The Sound of Music would have been eligible because those songs were originally written for the play and not specifically for the film.
0: Correct. There were a few that were written for the film, but they're not the ones that you would think of for a Best Song nomination.
1: Yeah. Best Sound Effects went to The Great Race, beating out Von Ryan's Express. Best Sound Overall went to The Sound of Music, beating out The Agony and the Ecstasy, Dr. Zhivago, The Great Race, and Shenandoah. Best Art Direction, Black and White, Went to Ship of Fools, that's with Robert Clatworthy for art direction and Joseph Kish for set decoration. They beat out King Rat, Apache Blue, The Slender Thread, and The Spy Who Came In from the Cold. Best Art Direction Color went to John Box, Terex Marsh, and Dario Simone for Dr. Zhivago. Beating out entries from The Agony and the Ecstasy, The Greatest Story Ever Told, Inside Daisy Clover, and The Sound of Music. Best Cinematography, Black and White, went to Ship of Fools, beating out In Harm's Way, King Rat, Morituri, and Apache Blue. Best Cinematography, Color, went to Dr. Zhivago, beating out The Agony and the Ecstasy, The Great Race, The Greatest Story Ever Told, and The Sound of Music. Best Costume Design, Black and White, went to Julie Harris for Darling, beating out Morituri, A Rage to Live, Ship of Fools, and The Slender Thread. Just note, Slender Thread costumes were done by Edith Head, who's racking up those nominations and wins. Best Costume Design, Color, went to Dr. Zhivago and Phyllis Dalton. Beating out entries from Agony and the Ecstasy, Greatest Story Ever Told, Inside Daisy Clover, and The Sound of Music. Inside Daisy Clover, the nominations were for Edith Head and Bill Thomas, so she was nominated in both categories. Best Film Editing went to William H. Reynolds for The Sound of Music, beating out Cat Ballou, Dr. Zhivago, The Flight of the Phoenix, and The Great Race. And Best Special Visual Effects went to Thunderball, and John Steers, beating out the greatest story ever told. There's also an honorary award to Bob Hope for unique and distinguished service to our industry and the Academy. The Irving G. Thalborg Memorial Award went to William Wyler, and the Gene Herschelt Humanitarian Award went to Edmund L. Depati. So the final tally, Dr. Jivago and The Sound of Music had ten nominations each. The next up was Ship of Fools with eight, and then a few movies had five for... 3, and 2. And the most wins, Dr. Chivago and Sound of Music were tied with 5 each, Darling with 3, and Ship of Fools with 2. So, do you have any thoughts on how those played out overall?
0: I do. I made a point of... Uh, I I only watched one other nominee to prepare for this, and I made a point of watching Dr. Zhivago, because I had a... Fu- in my mind, just based off of which films are remembered, I felt like that was the race. And I think Dr. Shivago's the better film than Sound of Music. Dr. Shivago does have a couple of flaws, but for an adult audience, it's a much more complex and I think a much more engaging film. I think part of what struck me is We've covered David Lean a lot on our podcast. And while I felt like Lawrence of Arabia and Bridge on the River Kwai were kind of two very similar films, Dr. Zhivago a very different film. And I, I think it's because I, I was not expecting that going in. So I watched Sound of Music first. And I remember when watching Sound of Music, you know, those opening panoramic shots going, yep, that's Robert Wise, and that's the kind of thing that David Lean's not going to be able to match. But then when I saw Dr. shivago he did. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, I'll talk more. We can talk more about Dr. shivago as we go, but I kind of felt like that should have been the Best Picture winner. William Wyler was nominated for Best Director. And there is an alternate timeline in which it is William Wyler's Sound of Music and not Robert Wise's Sound of Music. What do you think that would have been like? Oh,
1: yeah, that's a good question.
0: And for our listeners, I asked the question because William Wyler was the original hired director for Sound of Music, and then he backed out of the project.
1: Yeah, there were a few changes with that. So Audrey Hepburn didn't make it. And the Baroness was originally cast as Grace Kelly, but she had to step down after becoming Princess of Monaco. So we could have had a fairly different movie. But yeah, William Wyler, we are talking about the man who'd previously won Best Director for Ben-Hur, Best Years of Our Lives, and Mrs. Miniver, and had been nominated for Dodsworth, Wuthering Heights, The Letter, The Little Foxes, The Heiress, Detective Story, Roman Holiday, Friendly Persuasion, and this appears to be his last best director nomination for The Collector although he did win the Irving G Thalberg Memorial
0: I think he had one more film after The Collector Rob Kelly just covered it on his show Fade Out where he looks at the last work of an important actor or director
1: Okay right, yeah I'm just looking at his the summary on uh, Wikipedia here and The Collector is listed as his last nomination for best director So not necessarily his last film but his last oscar nomination in that category apparently it would have been like you know uh hitchcock with psycho kept making movies for 15 more years or 18 more years right i trust wyler would have made a very good film because that's what he does but i don't know if it would have been the same cuz looking at this i'm not seeing a whole lot of musicals Mm-mm. so i don't know if he'd have been as well suited to it as someone who'd already you know, been through, say, West Side Story. And Robert Wise, I, he is versatile. I mean, William Wyler is also somewhat versatile, but if you look at Robert Wise and what he's known for, yeah, he did West Side Story and Sound of Music, which are both big-scale musicals. He also did The Day the Earth Stood Still, Star Trek The Motion Picture, a pile of film noir. He's one of the directors that was successful in multiple genres. And William Wyler had... William Weiler had that, but to a lesser degree, he seemed more specialized and focused. So I don't know if we would have had a three hour musical of this caliber had it been Weiler directing. So I think we still would have had a good movie, but I don't know if it would have been able to compete with Dr. Zhivago. Saying that, honestly, going through these nominations, the only thing that was thought I clearly had in my mind was. I need to get around to watching that copy of Dr. Zhivago I've had for a few years.
0: It is a great movie. I'm not sure. I, I thought I knew until we until as you were reading him, I noticed that Ethan Head had nom- was nominated twice. I'm not sure what the Academy rules were at this time. I do know that there... You just mentioned the best years of our lives. I know that after the best years of our lives a rule was put in place to prevent someone from winning an award in two different categories in the same year uh, because Harold Russell listeners can hear more about this cuz we did cover best years of our lives but H- Harold Russell was a veteran who was cast in the film and the short version is he was nominated for supporting actor the academy thought he was likely not to win so they Awarded him an honorary Oscar, and then he won Best Supporting Actor. So they put a rule in place to prevent that from um, happening again. I don't know if that rule took the form of limiting where and how many times someone could be nominated. So I I think part of what hurt Dr. Shivago is Omar Sharif is omitted, but for example, the other main cast is. Julie Christie, who won Best Actress, but for a different film. Is that why she didn't get nominated for, a, you know, Dr. Shivago Rod Steiger probably should have won Best Supporting Actor. I'm just going to say it. But instead of being nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Dr. Zhivago, he was nominated for The Pawnbroker as Best Actor. So I, I think some of the nominations for those actors who were in multiple films in the same eligible year, hurt Dr. Shivago in that they got nominated for other projects and not Shivago.
1: That is possible. Thinking about it, I thought that there were cases of multiple nominations in one category that come later. I'm just looking into that now.
0: Well, like I said, I, I don't know how they adjudicate it, but I do know that there's a rule, like, you could not win best supporting actress and best actress now.
1: Yeah, that may be the case because I, I am thinking I could have sworn that there were years where John Williams was nominated against himself in some of the music categories.
0: Well, then they may allow that because you would win for one or the other, but not both.
1: Yeah, because yeah, I'm seeing that 1973. Best Music, Original Dramatic Score, Images, and the Poseidon Adventure. There's at least one case where it happened. So he's got a lot of nominations and some wins coming up here. But going through it, some of the years when I know he had multiple nominations, it looks like they were in multiple categories as well. Okay. But that that could also be rules for what they consider the major awards that don't apply to things like music and costume design. Right? It might have been something they had in place for the acting, directing, best picture. Right. So, any more thoughts on the Oscars, or should we look at the Golden Globes?
0: Uh, let's go to the Golden Globes. All right.
1: So, because the Golden Globes actually split by genre, uh, they gave the best drama to Dr. Zhivago, beating The Collector, Flight of the Phoenix, A Patch of Blue, and Ship of Fools. And the best comedy went to... Or, or comedy or musical, sorry, those are combined now. That did go to Sound of Music, beating out Cat Blue, The Great Race, Those Magnificent Men, in Their Flying Machines, and A Thousand Clowns. So... That split vote on the Oscars doesn't need to be split in the Golden Globes, so they both got the awards. Best Actor went to Omar Sharif for Dr. Zhivago, beating out Rex Harrison for Agony and the Ecstasy, Sidney Poitier for Patch of Blue, Rod Steiger for The Pawnbroker*, and Oscar Werner for The Ship of Fools. Best Actress in a Drama went to Samantha Egger for The Collector, Julie Christie for Darling was nominated as was Elizabeth Hartman for A Patch of Blue, Simone Signorette for Ship of Fools, and Maggie Smith for Othello. So Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy went to Lee Marvin for Cat Baloo, beating out Jack Lemmon for The Great Race, Jerry Lewis for Boing Boing, Jason robots for a Thousand Clowns, and Alberto Sordi for Those Magnificent Men and Their Flying Machines. Best Actress Comedy or Musical went to Julie Andrews for The Sound of Music, beating out Jane Fonda for Cat Baloo, Barbara Harris for a Thousand Clowns, Rita Tushingham for The Knack and How to Get It, and Natalie Wood for Inside Davy Clover. Best Supporting Actor went to Oscar Werner for The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, beating Red Buttons for Harlow, Frank Finley for Othello, Hardy Kruger for The Flight of the Phoenix, and Telly Savalas for Battle of the Bulge. Sorry if I sounded surprised. I did not expect to see Red Buttons in a major acting award.
0: Doesn't he win Supporting Actor one year?
1: Maybe he does. We will see.
0: Okay. What just struck me before you continue, Blaine, and I didn't notice it looking at him. Maggie Smith was nominated for Best Actress for Othello in the Golden Globes, but was nominated for Best Supporting Actress in the Oscars, which, again, makes you wonder how they determine these things, because she played Desdemona, that is the female lead in Othello.
1: Yeah, and while you were covering that, I did look it up. He actually won for Sayonara in 1957. Okay. Looking at the picture, I realized my surprise wasn't it was mainly because I, yeah, the name is Red Buttons. I was picturing Red Skelton.
0: Okay, okay,
1: yeah. So that that's that's on me, because a Red Skelton, he he's one of those guys who's more of a performer than an actor. He's an entertainer. Best supporting actress went to Ruth Gordon for Inside David Clother, beating out Joan Blondell for Cincinnati Kid, Joyce Redman for Othello, Thelma Ritter for Boeing Boeing, and Peggy Wood for the Sound and Music. Best director went to David Lean for Doctor Zhivago. Beating out Guy Green for Patch of Blue, John Slushinger for Darling, Robert Wise for The Sound of Music, and William Wyler for The Collector. Best Screenplay went to Dr. Zhivago and Robert Bolt. Beating out Agony and the Ecstasy, The Collector, Patch of Blue, and Slender Thread. Best Foreign Film in the English Language went to Darling. Beating out The Knack and How to Get It, The Leather Boy's 90 Degrees in the Shade and Othello. Best Foreign Film, they call it foreign language, I would say non-English language. That went to Juliet of the Spirits from Italy, beating out Always Further On, Circle of Love, Redbeard, and The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Redbeard is good, by the way. So it's a, a Kira Kurosawa. Okay. Uh, best music original score went to Dr. Zhivago and Maurice Jarre, beating out Battle of the Bulge, The Great Race, The Sandpiper, and The Yellow Rolls Royce. Best original song went to Forget Domini for Yellow Rolls Royce, beating out The Ballad of Cat Baloo. Shadow of Your Smile from The Sandpiper, Sweetheart Tree from The Great Race, and the title song from That Funny Feeling. Best TV Show went to The Man from U.N.C.L.E., beating out Frank Sinatra, Man in His Music, Get Smart, I Spy, and My Name is Barbara. Best TV Star Male went to David Janssen from The Fugitive, beating out Don Adams for Get Smart, Ben Gazzara for Run For Your Life, David McCallum for Man From U.N.C.L.E., and Robert Vaughn for The Man From U.N.C.L.E. And then Best TV Star Female went to Anne Francis for Honey West, beating out Patty Duke from The Patty Duke Show, Mia Farrell from Peyton Place, Dorothy Malone from Peyton Place, and Barbara Stanwyck for The Big Valley. So anything jump out at you there?
0: No, just uh, as I mentioned earlier, I if you were going to nominate Maggie Smith, you probably needed to put her in a different category for the Oscars. I think the Golden Globes got that one right.
1: Yeah. But again, there's no hard and fast rules. It's where they want to submit them. Right. So looking at the historical numbers, so the IMDb rankings of every film that came out in 1965 does put The Sound of Music as number one of the nominees. So it's Sound of Music at 12, A Patch of Blue at 13, and Dr. Zhivago at 14. All of their average ratings round to 8.0. So that's a pretty close race.
0: Yeah, I... We typically don't have them clumped that close together.
1: No, it's very rare. Looking at all of them, the top film for the year is The Corporal and the Others, which I believe, uh, based on the names, it looks like it's Russian or that that sort of area. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two is Operation Y. Three is Guide. Four is Red Beard by Akira Kurosawa. Again, it is excellent. Uh, War and Peace is number five, and that is a Russian adaptation directed by Sergei Bondachuk. Time to Love is six. War and Peace, part one. So that War and Peace was split into two. And part one is also here. It's coming in at number seven. Uh, For a few dollars more by Sergio Leone, with Clint Eastwood comes in at number eight. Then we have The Shop on Main Street, Forest of the Hanged, and Kai Filot. So going through this list, I would say that it looks like For a Few Dollars More is the only American film that is scored above it. And then just scrolling down, because Darling, Ship of Fools, and A Thousand Clowns were the other three nominees. Which we both felt, just reading the list last month, even before we'd seen Dr. Zhivago, based on the memory, as you said, those are the ones that are remembered. Here's The Collector at 38. There's a 1,000 Clowns at number 42. Yeah, and that's it for the top 50. So I'm not seeing Darling or Ship of Fools. The top 50 goes down to an average rating of 7.3 out of 10.
0: Okay.
1: Let's see if I could find... Oh, here's Darling from 1965. That's a 7.1 out of 10. And Ship of Fools is also a 7.1 out of 10. So they would not have made that top 50, but they're probably in the top 100 with ratings that close to the bottom, close to that 7.3. Comparing this to Letterboxed, they put War and Peace at number one, and Redbeard at number two for the year. My Name is Barbara is the first English-language film to make the list, and that's at number nine. For a Few Dollars More comes in at 11. And again, of the nominees, the top-rated film is The Sound of Music. So that one comes in at number 20 for the year overall on the IM- are on Letterboxd. And the Corporal and the others, that's number one on the IMDb, is showing up at number 31 on Letterboxd. Okay. So and again, they agree that the next highest of the nominees should be Dr. Zhivago. But they also put a patch of blue in between. They're just a little more spaced out. And again, with a, a lot of non-American films. In between.
0: For a Few Dollars More is my favorite out of the Man With No Name trilogy.
1: Okay, I will take that. I've, I've seen Sanjuro now. I haven't seen For a Few Dollars More. I don't know if it was as closely tied as the other ones were. And for people who don't get that connection, we did uh, discuss Yojimbo, which was the Akira Kurosawa original that Fistful of Dollars was based on with pretty past guest Paul Spataro on his Is It Jaws podcast. And then Sanjuro was the quasi-sequel to Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo. It's a lot of the same cast and similar stories, but with different characters. But I believe that that plot structure inspired some of, for a few dollars more. So I've been planning to watch those close together at some point. So we've heard, so Trey, you said that you would have given it to Dr. Jivago. I would have yeah and i haven't seen Zhivago, but that is the only other one i would intend to watch before i made up my mind on that so i i think i mean from my mind i have no issues with sound of music taking it home it is a very good movie so whether or not doctor Zhivago is just enough to that i would take it as number 1 i can't say but so i think we both agree that it was absolutely deserving of a nomination yes Okay, so yeah, it's one of those years. It's not one of the other years where we're going, "How did this get nominated?" or "Why was this number one?" But no, it's just, it you know, it's just something where maybe this is a year where they get edged out because there's two really, really great films. So, who would you recommend this to?
0: I'd recommend it to fans of musicals. I would recommend it to fans of Julie Andrews. It's it's benign in pretty much every way. I can't, you know. As a parent myself, sometimes I like to use film to help explain certain concepts to my kids. So, for example, and if you'll forgive me for getting political for just a little bit, Blaine, with the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, I have felt it important to show my kids the Selma to give them some historical context for what was going on. And how bad the attitudes were in the sixties, and how those attitudes persist today, if you wanted to introduce your kids to the concepts of fascism or try and explain the Nazis and do it in as ironically non-threatening of a manner as possible, uh, you could do a lot worse than the sound of music
1: yeah, you could because this this demonstrates how the characters feel about the nazis without explaining why they feel that way so we get some of that i would do the same this is a very easy film to recommend Mm
0: -hmm.
1: because this covers you know a lot of the basis we've remembered the the schmaltzy romance stuff as a kid as long as the as well as the fun songs watching it as an adult yeah there's more than just the romance if you take nazis out of the film then this film would have ended with the wedding you could still have a movie Mm -hmm. but that last hour exists because of the conflict in the changing politics and Georg's fear that the Nazis are going to wipe Austria off the map and just make them part of Germany. And he is an Austrian nationalist. But again, he doesn't outright say, this is my concern, this is what I'm afraid of. It's very subtle just when you hear the objections, things like showing the Austrian flag or singing Edelweiss and getting the audience to sing along. So. Yeah, it is a very easy film to recommend. So if you have even the slightest inclination, watch it. As we said, this has been so readily available. I find it hard to believe that anyone who is enough of a film buff to be listening to this podcast in the first place would not have already seen it if they weren't interested. Unless you're just that emerging film buff and you're just exploring what's out there. If you haven't seen this yet and you're listening to A podcast about movies you owe it to yourself to track this one down
0: well and it's it's not hard to find you and i were talking about this a little bit off air and you mentioned the numbers this is a movie that's never gone away (laughs) right you know um it's available on dvd it's available on blu-ray i would say that next to Netflix if you have a streaming service you probably have Disney Plus I checked I can't speak to every international market but in Star as uh, stars or whatever it's called in Europe or at least the UK and in Canada and in the United States it's on the Disney streaming service so it it's very accessible and easy to find
1: Yeah, I can confirm that for Canada. It is definitely on Disney+, Plus through that star section, which absorbs a lot of the Hulu content as well that you guys get in the States. So Hulu is not a standalone thing in Canada, so they just brought most of their library into Disney+, and increased the Disney Plus price at the same time. But it's still reasonable for the amount of content we're getting. So we are happy to stay, stay subscribed, especially with a baby that'll be six months old on Monday. Having access to the huge Disney library is a plus.
0: Yeah. I see what you did there.
1: (laughs) So should we let people know what to expect next month?
0: Next month, uh, we uh, look at the price of sticking to one's conviction. We're um, going to review A Man for All Seasons. And I did do a little bit of legwork in advance. Unfortunately, A Man for All Seasons is not available as part of a package streaming service. But it is available for rent on Apple, Amazon, and most of those types of services. It's just not part of, let I say part of a pat, you know, we just mentioned you can watch Sound of Music on Disney Plus. It's not on Amazon Prime or anything like that to where you can stream it for free. You will have to rent it.
1: Yeah, I actually purchased it through iTunes. So you can stream it, but. You will know if you have access to it, because you'd pay specifically for access to this movie. It's not bundled. And Man for All Seasons beat out Alfie. The Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. The Sand Pebbles. And Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? So that's what it was up against. And just scrolling down the list here, in terms of what I remember, and what's taking home other awards, looks like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is another notable film.
0: Which I'll just throw this out there at, at least you know, we're, we're recording February 2022, so at least at this point Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is on HBO Max in the States under the TCM content portion of the library
1: Okay, alright, so you guys can join us again next month for A Man From All Seasons and thank you for listening
0: Thanks everyone My mom always said, life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir, I want some more.